0: Thank you for joining us again in our study of the gospel according to Matthew. I wonder, can you recall a time when you missed a big opportunity? Maybe it was the girl who got away. Or for the women listening, maybe it was the boy who got away. Maybe you had a job opportunity for a promotion or to travel overseas, but you just instead decided to play it safe. Uh, You just passed on the chance, and looking back, you really wish that you would have gone. Or maybe there was an opportunity that presented itself uh, to be involved in the work of the gospel, a missions outreach, or to go to Bible school, and you just passed. Sometimes uh, there are these chances that come around um, just once. Sometimes they might come around again, uh, but sometimes things happen once and then sadly the opportunity is gone never to return. And one of the difficulties with seizing great opportunities when they present themselves is that it can be hard to know what is really in front of you until it's gone. And sadly, it can only be afterwards that you look back and think, Wow! I missed it! In this episode, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Here, one of Matthew's supporting characters, John the Baptist, returns on the stage after a pretty long hiatus. Now, like many of us going through the fog of life's opportunities, he struggles to know the import of what is really happening around him. From our earlier episodes covering chapter 3, we talked about how John was a preacher of repentance. And if ever there was a fire and brimstone preacher, it was he. But John's message went beyond, say, someone like Jonathan Edwards with his famous sinners in the hands of an angry God. John placed his fiery message in a certain... Eschatological framework. In other words, he was convinced that he stood at a crucial juncture on Israel's timeline. This was the time when the Old Testament prophecies would come true. The time of God's reign was at the door. There would be a coming one who was greater than him, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He described Jesus in this way, "...his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So, John viewed the coming one, almost certainly a reference to the Messiah, as one who would bring salvation, yes, but salvation through judgment. He would save Israel by destroying all of her enemies, even if, strangely enough, some of those enemies were Israelites themselves. John the Baptist is a mysterious figure, but Matthew's description of him insists that he knew something of the greatness of Jesus. He hesitates to baptize Jesus and hears the voice from heaven say, This is my beloved son. John must have been a pretty well-known character, and we get that impression even from other ancient sources. Matthew left John in the Jordan River in chapter 3, but uh, he just assumes that his readers know that eventually John was thrown into prison. And in chapter 11, uh, we can imagine John languishing in prison, eventually to be beheaded. And, while here he's befuddled. He is not a person who shies away from hardship. After all, remember, he lives out in the desert at one point. Uh, So he sends a question to Jesus, but it doesn't come out of a place of self-pity. But it's a a theological confusion. So with that background in the view, uh, think of why John sends ambassadors to Jesus. And then the significance of Jesus' response as I read our text will be in Matthew 11, starting in verse 1, going through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by your deeds. This passage, uh, chapter 11, 1 through 19, contains three main units. Uh, First, in the first six verses, Jesus assures John that uh, he really is the coming one and that the kingdom really has arrived. In verses 7 to 15, Jesus assures the crowd that John really was the forerunner of the Messiah. And in verses 16 to 19, Jesus then condemns this generation for not responding properly to the opportunity connected to the forerunner and the coming one. Now, this in turn explains the difficulty of why John even had to ask the question in the first place. Uh, The section continues the theme of what we've learned about previously, uh, the sending of the Twelve, but also the prediction of their rejection. Uh, The kingdom has been offered, but this evil generation has rejected it. This prepares us for the woes to come and the discussion in chapter 12 about the religious leaders' adamant rejection of Jesus. So, let's take each section in turn. First, Jesus assures John that he really is the coming one. In light of chapter 3, we should be able to sympathize with John's question. Now, as we read the Bible, or at least many of us, it's so easy to let our pre-understanding that there are two comings of Christ cloud our interpretation, making it hard to understand why these characters are struggling the way that they do. But John would not have made the distinction. He wouldn't have known about the first coming of Jesus and then a long gap of time and then the second coming of Christ. For him, he just saw Jesus as the coming one who would bring judgment on the wicked. But from his perspective, it didn't look like the wicked were being scooped up and thrown into the fire. They seemed to be doing just fine. Their sin unrestrained, as evidenced by his own place in prison. So uh, Jesus responds to John's, uh, hey, what gives? With a collection of Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah, particularly chapter 29, 35, and 61. This assures John that uh, his previous understanding, that Jesus really is the coming one bringing the kingdom, was accurate. However, the passages that he quotes only focus on their restoration elements. As we will see in our next episode, uh, this doesn't mean that Jesus simply turns a blind eye to the parts about judgment. But that's not what's happening now. The significance of Jesus' response to John in saying that the kingdom prophecies are coming true uh have been reinforced with the discovery from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, 4Q521, or what is called the Messianic Apocalypse, um, speaks very similarly to what Jesus is doing here. Now, I'd like to read from this fascinating document, and as I do so, keep your eye out for how this shows uh, first-century views of what the kingdom will be like. I'm reading from the Wise, Ebeg, and Cook translation. For the heavens and the earth shall listen to his Messiah, and all which is in them shall not turn away from the commandments of the Holy Ones. Strengthen yourselves, O you who seek the Lord in his service. Will you not find the Lord in this, all those who hope in their heart? For the Lord attends to the pious and calls the righteous by name. Over the humble his spirit hovers, and he renews the faithful in his strength. For he will honor the pious upon the throne of his eternal kingdom, setting prisoners free, opening the eyes of the blind, raising up those who are bowed down. And forever I shall hold fast to those who hope, and in his faithfulness shall all the fruit of good deeds shall not be delayed for anyone. And the Lord shall do glorious things which had not been done, just as he said, For he shall heal the critically wounded, he shall revive the dead, he shall send good news to the afflicted, he shall satisfy the poor, he shall guide the uprooted, he shall make the hungry rich, and the discerning ones, and all of them as the holy ones. Now, there are a few um, blank spots on the scraps that we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so sometimes it's a little bit choppy there. But notice how. Uh, this passage from the people at Qumran, uh, recorded in the Dead Sea Scrolls, are using a lot of the same scriptures that Jesus cites to talk about this is the end times and it is unplaying before us in our very eyes. Now, this is important as we turn to the second section. Uh, Here, Jesus looks at the crowd. Uh, These prophecies really are being fulfilled. So, the answer to John's question is, yes, I am the coming one. Uh, You were right. The kingdom is coming. But John spells out the implications for what this means, lest anyone get the wrong idea from John's confusion. The fulfillment of these prophecies also mean that John was the predicted forerunner. He was a prophet, but more than any old prophet. He is the important predicted herald of salvation. He concluded the age of what we often call the Old Testament. And in this role, uh, he is greater than anyone else, greater than anyone born of a woman. Verse 13 says, The prophets and the law prophesied until John. But now, with Jesus, a new day has dawned. The kingdom has arrived, and so there's a way that anyone in this new kingdom is better off than John. Now, this has received numerous suggestions. It's easier to cross off bad ones than it is to pinpoint the right one. The Lord certainly didn't mean that anyone in the New Testament was morally superior to John nor can it mean that anyone in the kingdom has a greater impact than John the Baptist. And certainly it doesn't deny that one day John will be resurrected and when the kingdom comes in all its fullness, John will be there. Instead, the idea seems to be that anyone in the kingdom is in a position more blessed than in previous eras. Kingdom members can certainly expect to suffer persecution, but they get to experience the new covenant. God's spirit living inside of them. They are able to see the forgiveness that Christ came to accomplish and get the panorama view of God's big plan of salvation. As Jesus says in uh, thirteen sixteen. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In the third unit of our text, Jesus changes from explaining John to the crowds to condemning the crowds because of John. They are like fickle children for whom nothing is ever good enough, like a child complaining, the bath is too hot and now it's too cold. Uh, John and Jesus' style were very different, each symbolically representing their different roles. John's ascetic practices matched the call for repentance, and uh, the message of judgment that he preached. Jesus' feasting matched his bringing in of the kingdom as a feast and the joyful liberation that comes with it. The moment had come for Israel, but they passed on it. God was at work, but they didn't have the eyes of faith to see it, and so they were just left. God tried to get their attention through John from one perspective and tried to get their attention from Jesus from pretty much the exact opposite perspective. This all speaks to the importance of paying careful attention to the world around us in light of Scripture, keeping one eye on the Bible and one eye on the world. What is God doing around the people of Israel at that time? They weren't listening to what God was actually saying because it was different from what they expected. In the same way, we need to keep our eye on the Bible and our eye in the world around us and ask, what is it that God is doing around us? How is he at work today? And listen very carefully, lest the opportunity come and we miss it. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partner.